You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. And I'm here today with Paul Thagard, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Waterloo in the philosophy department. But I understand you also taught in computer science and in psychology, and for many years taught, I guess, a first-year course in critical thinking. That was sort of your presumably most popular course. (laughs) And also the author of, wow, countless books. I've got a couple of them with me here. I've got the most recent book, which is called Fighting Misinformation, Why Falsehoods Fly. We've also got this one called Balance, How It Works and What It Means. There's Bots and Beasts, What Makes Machines, Animals, and People Smart, The Brain and the Meaning of Life, Natural Philosophy, From Social Brains to Knowledge, Meaning, Beauty, all this kind of stuff. But there's also Cognitive Science of Science, Coherence in Thought and Action, Brain Mind, Mind Society, and this other old one called Hot Thought Mechanisms and Application of Emotional Cognition. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for having me. Well, the latest book about misinformation lays out a theory of how knowledge is created and disseminated and looks for weak links right, that lead to misinformation and disinformation. And it builds on a medical metaphor, which I think you did some work on in prior years, right? You spent a lot of time on the science of knowledge in medicine, but it also builds on a couple other themes that you've been working on, such as coherence models and also constraints models. So I think all of your work is really all about how we make sense of the world. And I really don't know where to start. I think I'm going to start with this book on balance because I think it captures the interdisciplinarity of what it is that you do, where you start off with a very narrow neuroscientific phenomenon, and then you expand into all of these other domains and show how metaphorically our understanding of the world is shaped by this very physical phenomenon. So if we were to start with this book, Balance, what drove you to do this? Was it your experience with vertigo and the kind of vertigo of your relations that led you to write this book? Yes, that's how I got interested in balance. It's because I had an attack on vertigo. I was lifting weights in the basement. And when I got up from the bench, suddenly the room started to spin. And I thought, this is really strange. But I knew what it was because I knew about vertigo. And I thought, I've got vertigo. This is really bizarre. Fortunately, it turned out to be the easily fixed kind because there's a great head exercise called the Epley Maneuver that gets your ear crystals back into shape. And so I got rid of it fairly quickly, but that got me interested in balance. Then I noticed that the local rec center was having a class on Tai Chi, and it said, this will help improve your balance. And so I got interested in that, and I took the course on Tai Chi. And the instructor was terrific, but of course, the explanation he gave for why the slow movements were effective in improving people's balance was completely Uh, in my mind, bonkers. He did it in terms of traditional Chinese philosophy, things like 
moving the chi around and getting your yin and yang right. And I didn't believe that. So I started to look into the neuroscience of balance and I discovered it was quite fascinating and explained not only my experience with vertigo, but lots of other different, more pernicious causes of vertigo. So that's how I got into the neuroscience of it. As you mentioned, my work combines philosophy with psychology and neuroscience and computer models. And this seemed like a really interesting application because it takes a lot of interaction in the brain among the information that comes from your eyes and from your ears and from your body to put together a sense of balance, which we usually take for granted. You walk down the street and you don't worry about it because you're just keeping up. I go for fast walks all the time and I'm looking out for routes, but I hardly ever trip because I've got a good balance. But how does that work? And so that got me into the neuroscience of it. But while I was doing that, the term kept cropping up everywhere that I was, that I was reading in the newspaper. So people were talking about life-work balance. And of course, in the pandemic, people were worried about how are you going to balance the freedom that people need against the, the equally great need to stop the pandemic from spreading. So balance metaphors, I realized, were absolutely perversive. Eventually, in the book, I came up with a list of more than 50 of them. So the book went from the neuroscience of, of balance inspired by my experience with vertigo and Tai Chi into all these metaf metaphorical realms, which I think are really an important part of understanding how our lives work. Now, if we just drill into balance, I mean, there are sensors right? And there are processors and actuators involved in, in the process of balance. And you can have problems at any stage, right? So, uh, you know, I do this in my class a lot. Whenever we're trying to diagnose a problem, we try to figure out whether it's a problem with the sensor, with the processor, or with the actuator. And so the sensor mechanism is really quite complex, right? I think most people don't really understand how it works, right? This inner ear mechanism. But the inner ear mechanism itself is kind of useless if you don't have the capacity to make sense of that data, right? And so we have a specific set of instruments in the brain that integrate all this information and coordinate it with other sensor data. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, what's amazing is that most of this goes on in the brainstem. The brainstem is not the higher part of the brain that we associate with complex reasoning. It's just a very old and primitive, but it's got nevertheless this amazing processing ability to take in the information that comes from the inner ear. Now, what, why, would you, why would the ear be involved with balance? Well, it's because there's a subtle mechanism there that notices changes, that notices when you swing one way or the other, it can detect whether your head is moving. But what really fascinated me is that this isn't just a simple input-output kind of mechanism. It's a coherence mechanism because you have to satisfy a lot of different constraints and put things together. So the inner ear is part of the source of information, but your brainstem is also hearing from your eyes because your eyes are a big source of information about whether your head is moving or what's going on. And of course, your body, whether your arms are flailing around or, or being stable. So what really impressed me about this rather primitive part of the brain and the brainstem, nevertheless, it's performing this very complex kind of constraint satisfaction and helping you know whether your head's in the right place or not. So seasickness, right? I've understood seasickness to be uh, the result of some kind of incoherence, right? A conflict between what you're getting in from one sensory instrument and another. Is that right? Yeah, because your eyes say you're moving, but your head says you're not, and so you get a conflict. But the really interesting question was, why does this turn into nausea? I mean, nausea is something that goes on in your stomach. Why do you feel sick to your stomach? Well, it turns out that the main brain area important for nausea is actually in the brainstem, and it's not far from your balance area. So you get a kind of crosstalk between the stomach nausea area and the brainstem, so in the brainstem and, and the balance area. 
And so it's really just a kind of unfortunate accident that these areas are close together. And so when you're getting this mismatch between thinking you're moving or thinking you're not moving because different parts of your body are telling you different things, that ends up being communicated as, oh, there's something wrong with my stomach. It's time to throw up. And that's where nausea comes from. And so why do people experience the sensation of the room spinning? Aha. That turns out to be really complicated. And I discovered that not everybody with vertigo experiences the room spinning. Some people experience their head spinning. And so you think your head's moving. And that actually makes much more sense because it's, if your eyes, is, it's not agreeing with your, what the inner ear is saying, well, yeah, maybe it's because my head is spinning. But the, what kind of vertigo I had, and other people often get, is the room spinning. Now, why do you believe that the room is spinning? Because the room clearly isn't spinning and it has nothing to do with your head. So I looked into that and it seemed to me to be a result of another part of the brain involved in visual motion detection. And so we have a really good way of noticing whether things are moving. You can see a coyote moving across a trail, for example. Uh, so we've got subtle ways of doing that. And that gets involved here. And so that simple explanation, which is already wrong, that your head is spinning isn't good enough. And so your brain decides, oh, I need another hypothesis. It must be the room that's spinning rather than my head. So it's a really complicated chain of inferences involving multiple brain areas. And I think a lot of people would think of balance as something that is subconscious, right? And maybe even reflexive, but it's not, right? It's actually inferential process and one that kind of rises to the level of consciousness sometimes, right? And I think you show that you can sort of test various theories of consciousness <laughs> by seeing if they can explain exactly what's going on with this balance experience. Yes, I wanted to apply it there because consciousness is probably the hardest problem in all of science and philosophy. I mean, right up there with quantum gravity and dark energy and things like that. So lots of people are trying to explain it, but there aren't any good theories yet. In fact, the book I'm writing right now is a new theory of consciousness, which you probably don't want to get into. But I applied an older theory that I had that identified several mechanisms that I thought were important and used that as a way of trying to explain consciousness and exceed what other people had managed to say. Actually, one interesting thing in the balance book is I make a prediction. I don't know if you read about the very recent, just in the last week or two, findings about what was supposed to be an adversarial competition between two different theories of consciousness, major theories of consciousness. One's called interactive integration theory, and the other is a broadcast theory. And they each made predictions about what part of the brain is involved. But what I said in balance is that Probably they both lose because consciousness is all over the brain. It involves all these different sorts of things. And I didn't give a very specific prediction about that, but as far as I understand these new studies, they support that view over the particular theories that we're taking to be the most promising. Balance is mostly unconscious because almost all everything you do when you're walking down the street or even just sitting in front of the TV doesn't involve thinking about it. But when consciousness becomes important is when balance breaks. So, if you suddenly trip and fall and you go, ah, that's when it becomes conscious. So, most of the time, like most of the thinking we do, uh, balance is, is unconscious. But when it becomes important, for example, when your face is heading toward the ground, then you definitely become consciously aware of it. So, it fits well with the theory that uh, I developed in a paper in 2014 where I argued that competition is a big part of consciousness. That is, you've got lots of things going on among your 86 billion neurons, all sorts of patterns of firing happening, and almost everything is unconscious. But when something becomes important, 
largely because it's connected with your survival goals and your emotions, then it will break through into consciousness. And definitely that's what happens when balance fails. Right. And you have this wonderful example of when you're, I can't remember whether it was a ball or a rock. I do a lot of hiking. And so sometimes I'll be running down a rocky slope and I'll get onto a big rock and the rock starts moving, right? And you have to decide, are you going to move around on that rock and try to balance on that rock or do you jump off the rock? And that's a decision which is a conscious one, right? You're strategically trying to figure out whether or not to stay on or bail out, right? But for most of the way down, you're on autopilot, right? You're just doing this very quick, rapid processing where you're looking at all the data coming in and making these decisions, which are more or less automatic, right? Yes, there's a real kind of paradox about sports. David Papineau's a philosopher. I think he's been one of your previous guests who wrote about this in a really interesting way. Because on the one hand, it seems if you want to be good at sports, and this would cover rock climbing as well, mostly you've got to be really well trained. So what you do is automatic. So if you're playing baseball or critic, cricket and the ball is coming at you at 100 miles an hour, you've got to react very rapidly. You don't have time to stop and think, is that a curveball or is that a, a fastball? So it's got to be automatic. It's got to be unconscious. On the other hand, People spend vast amounts of time training to try to think, well, how can I hit the curveball or how can I hit the fastball? So what's the re resolution? The resolution is, sure, performance, like going down the cliff rapidly, is going to be largely automatic and unconscious. But to get to the point where you can do that requires a lot of conscious training, where you can think, here's what I do next, here's what I do, here's what I do next. And what practice does is translate that kind of conscious learning into something that's automatic so you can do it in the spur of the moment. So what that means is something as, as simple as balance can be improved through practice. Uh, I'm surprised you did not talk about how loss of balance is usually seen as a predictor of cognitive decline, right? I think for when doctors are trying to diagnose Alzheimer's, they'll often look at the patient's balance and the hand grip, and there's a couple of other physiological symptoms. But I've noticed that if I don't do yoga for a long period of time, my balance starts to deteriorate, right? This is something which you can improve, right? Or you can see decay. And if you don't use it, you lose it to some degree, right? Well, the kind of vertigo I had... The, the benign kind, fortunately, was easily fixed, but there are lots of other kinds that aren't. I didn't know that Alzheimer's had balance problems as well. I've got a friend who has severe vertigo as a result of mini strokes in his brain. So he's got part of his brain isn't working anywhere. So his ears are fine and eyes are fine, but the parts of the brain that are also involved in tying this all together got messed up by the strokes. And so that really is a sign of a serious underlying problem. And so how does this sort of say something about this information integration theory of consciousness? From its name alone, it sounds like a very sensible theory because, in fact, lots of information integration goes on. In fact, in balance, the brainstem is integrating information from the ears, from the eyes, from the body and motion areas in the brain. So it sounds like that's a good way to describe consciousness. But the particular theory of information integration is actually based on a mathematical formula. And so they try to give a mathematical account of what information integration amounts to. And it just doesn't succeed. The, f the formula is computationally intractable. That is, it requires exponentially amount of time to be able to do anything. In fact, they wrote a computer program and they found that, well, it could only handle 12 neurons because the thing was just so computationally inefficient. So that just can't be right. It's just mathematically wrong. And they've got a bunch of other additional claims they make. So sure, information integration is fine, but I don't think it's done by their mathematical formula or by the kinds of, of mechanisms that they talk vaguely about. I think it's done by neurons. And neurons are just really good at this because 
the way that neurons represent things in the world is through patterns of firing. So you got millions of your neurons and they can fire in particular patterns and they can stand for everything from blue to loud to headphones. And I think that's basically how our brain represents things it's through patterns of firing. What's amazing about the brain is that it can build up more complicated things. So it's not just blue, it can be blue coat or blue coat beside blue shirt. And so you put these together. And so these are binding mechanisms that are increasingly well understood within theoretical neuroscience. And I think what does the theoretical integration are these binding mechanisms, not this weird mathematical formula that can't be computed. So you talk about what's the semantic pointer competition. So what is that? Okay, so this is an idea about neural representation that was developed by my colleague, Chris Eliasmith. He's got an absolutely wonderful book called How to Build a Brain that described his idea of semantic pointers. This was in 2013, and just the year before, he published a paper in Science, which was the largest computer brain model ever built, and it still is. It uses many millions of neurons. Uh, and it's an idea of understanding how neural representations, which sound dumb, so you just got a bunch of special cells, neurons that can fire or not fire, and then how is it that they can build up really complicated ideas like the theory of relativity? How can you build up more and more complicated things? Well, to do that, you need an account of binding. And before Chris made this well-known, the idea of binding was usually one of synchronization. So you might have one set of neurons standing for shirt and another set of neurons standing for blue. And if they fire together, then you get blue shirt. But that won't get you more complicated things. That won't allow you to build things up to something saying like a blue shirt covered with ketchup is a disgusting phenomenon. So you'd be able to get more and more complicated thoughts. Chris's idea of semantic pointers is a, a theory of how you can build up more and more complex neural representations while retaining some of the sensory input that goes into it. That is, when you make blue shirt, you don't throw away blue and you don't throw away the shape. There's a nice mathematical computational way of saying how you can build up these complicated structures while retaining a lot of what into it. And I think this is really crucial for understanding consciousness. The biggest problem of consciousness is understand why there are feelings that go with it. Why is it that there's actually an experience of seeing a blue shirt? Well, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that our neural firing isn't just throwing away the inputs from the blue and the shirt shape. It's actually continuing it and retaining it, and that's all being bound together into what Chris called a semantic pointer. But wait, so you said this has this engages the affective system to some degree. Does it need to? It seems like you're just building up these more complex sort of concepts. Why do we need to get emotion involved? Oh, because we're organisms that have to operate in the world. In order to survive in the world and reproduce ourselves, we need to be able to detect threats like predators. We need to be able to find mates. We need to be able to find food. And so we need to have ways in which we can figure out whether our lives are going well or badly. And that's what emotions do. It's an incredibly efficient, constant, online evaluation of our conditions. So we're not like a robot that can certainly take perceptual inputs and make decisions, we are also constantly evaluating whether things are going good or bad. And so that's what our emotions do. So the idea that cognition and emotion are separate in the brain is just all wrong. They're constantly integrated, and it's a really good thing because it means that the perceptions that we're doing, the predictions that we're making, the explanations we're coming up are all tied with the explanations of current ways in which our situation is relevant to our goals. So emotion, instead of just being something that somehow gets in the way of cognition or is extraneous to it, it's actually tightly integrated with it. And that's one of the great powers of the human brain. Well, I think it was in Hot Thought that you said that if we want a better description of how people make decisions, then of course we have to incorporate emotion and we have to have some theory of 
emotional coherence. But you also imply that normatively, if we want to make better decisions, we, we need to engage that system. You contrast this with Max Bazerman, right? And who is, I think, represents an entire school of decision science, which says you're always better off stepping back and trying to evaluate things using your system too. So what, why normatively should we try to come up with a way of engaging emotions? Is there a good way or a bad way to do this? Sure, there's lots of bad ways of using emotions, and some emotions are just clearly irrational. And so if your major emotion is lust for power, <laughs> that's probably not going to do things that's good for other people. Uh, and lots of cases, take something like love. Love is often completely rational if you're in love with somebody who loves you and treats you well. But if you're in love with someone who's abusive, then it becomes an irrational emotion. So you can't just go with your gut because sometimes your gut is really stupid. On the other hand, there are two big advantages. One, of course, is that it works really fast. Sometimes we have to make fast decisions. If you're rock climbing and a rock starts to crumble, you don't have time to do a calculation of expected utility. <laughs> First of all, you don't have time to do that. And secondly, you don't know the probabilities and you don't need the utilities. You just got to make a quick emotional reaction that might you get, out, get you out of the trouble. So because we often have to make decisions quickly and because we often don't have the probabilities and the utilities that an economist would say we should use, the emotions are just a really crucial part of our decision making. Now, I think in, in the book, Fighting Misinformation, you build on the work of your late wife, Ziva Kunda, and also, of course, on the work of Francis Bacon by digging into motivated reasoning. And you expand the concept, right? And you say that in addition to a, a cognitive side, there is a an emotional side to biased memory, you know, not just biased memory, biased seeking and, and biased communication. And every step along the way, there is some bias, which is motivated in part by wishful thinking. Could you talk a bit about how did you build on that initial concept? Because everyone talks about motivated reasoning, right? I think everybody understands that term. You said that the, the rise of that term was a bit accidental because that's only sort of one piece of, of this, this puzzle of motivation. Yeah, well, Ziva published these papers back around 1990 that have become incredibly influential, especially in the last couple of years when misinformation has become so such a, a big issue. And I, what I show in my book, it, it won't be out till next February, unfortunately, is that motivated reasoning plays a big role in all the major areas where misinformation operates these days. I was talking about politics, but also about COVID and, and inequality and climate change. So take climate change, for example. There, it's really huge because the evidence is just overwhelming that the world is in really deep problems. Even Canada's having its worst wildfire season ever, and loads of other parts of the world are suffering from weather extremes. Uh, and, and the data is just overwhelming that this is a serious problem. But lots of people are saying, oh, no, we can move slowly, we can take our time. But that's motivated reasoning because they're either in cahoots with the fossil fuel companies, the oil and gas interests that don't want things to change very much, or they're in cahoots with the politicians who are tied up with those interests. So people's personal interests, their financial goals, their their political goals are what's motivating them to downplay climate change when it's an absolutely life and humanity threatening situation. Uh, so I think that motivated reasoning is a case where emotions go astray, where emotions such as people's greed for power or greed for money prevents them from paying attention to the evidence that makes it clear that the human race is in a big problem with this uh, increases in temperatures that human activity has caused. 
Well, look, I mean, it obviously makes sense when we look at, say, someone who is in the PR department of a fossil fuels company, <laughs> why they might fund a particular type of communication. But how does that explain why the person consuming that information would believe it, right? What's the motivation there? Well, people have different kinds of motivations. So I'll consider the Conservative Party in Canada. It's not nearly as extreme as the Republican Party in the United States, but they're very skeptical about attempts to rein in climate change. They don't carbon tax, for example. And so they're saying to people, well, we kind of come around, we sort of, they used to just simply deny climate change, but they've become a bit more sensible because the evidence is overwhelming. But they say, yes, but we don't want bad things like a carbon tax to get in the way. But then they tell to people and people think, well, I don't want to be taxed. I don't want to pay a carbon tax. And so they agree with the conservatives. There, they've got the personal motivation of not to be taxed. Or maybe they have a personal motivation to keep on driving their giant gas guzzling truck. So people who don't like being taxed and don't, which is, I guess, everybody, who don't like being taxed and don't want to give up their large gas-guzzling trucks, they're going to like the, what the Conservative Party is saying. Oh, don't worry about this. It's not that big a deal yet. Well, we'll just move very slowly and deliberately. Whereas the more informed people who know how rapidly these changes are taking place are saying, no, we can't take our time about it. We've got to make major changes right now, or the kinds of weather events that we're already seeing are going to just become more and more frequent. But ordinary people can be taken in because they've got their own economic and personal motivations and lifestyle motivations for keeping the kinds of lifestyles they already have. So how does that differ from the old cognitive dissonance that everybody learned about in school 30, 40 years ago. Well, cognitive dissonance is in the background here, but that was never a very theoretically well-developed idea. It was a similar, similar idea because it's actually a balance metaphor where people are saying you want to have a balance between your beliefs and your attitudes. And the social psychologists of the 50s found some wonderful examples where it operates. But they never had much of a theory. They didn't have a theory of how any of that worked because psychology wasn't terribly theoretical then. Now we can look at much more detailed processes about how cognition interacts with emotion, how all this happens in the brain that give us a much deeper understanding of where dissonance comes from, not just as a metaphor, which is basically what the dissonance theories have, but as a mechanism that operates in the brain so that our emotional goals can lead to us accepting misinformation that ultimately is not in our long-term interest. Right. And I think you said that originally the idea of motivated reasoning was purely cognitive, right? It was all this data comes in and then you selectively remember the stuff that is in alignment with your interests. Is there more to it than that? Well, Ziva treated it as, as often being a memory phenomenon. That is, when she had some wonderful experiments that really were the first ones to pin down empirically that motivated inference and reasoning are, are a problem. For example, you could give somebody who's a coffee drinker a study about coffee causing cancer, and they're going to say, oh, no, that can't be right. And then they go looking for other studies that suggest that coffee is fine. And so there it is a memory phenomenon a lot of the time where if you don't want to believe something, what you do is you go looking for evidence that will support your own views. And that was definitely part of what goes on. But I think Ziva under... But that's more than memory. That's actually about active search, right? Well, it's, it's both. It's search through your own memory, but also going out in the world for looking for data that would support what you believe. It's, it's memory search inside your head and outside your head. I, and that's definitely one kind of motivated inference. But since then, I think it's become much clearer that emotions are, are much bigger part of it than, than uh, Ziva recognized. The cases where people's fears kick in or people's 
desires for political power kick in. And I think so it's much more heavily driven by emotion than she recognized. It doesn't mean that she wasn't right about there being these memory-based biases, but it's way worse. Uh, so in the misinformation book, I give an example of extreme sort of motivated inference that's popular on TikTok right now called manifesting. So the idea is anything you want, you just want it and you will get it. Now, this, of course, is ridiculous. There are lots of things that people might want that they can't get. But why would anyone believe that? Well, because it makes them happy. It suits with their emotions. It makes them think they've got complete control over their lives because they can just manifest and get it done. Ziva thought, based on other examples, that people aren't completely unreasonable. That is, that they won't just believe something because they want to believe it. They'll actually have to do some work to find some evidence to support their views. And that was true in the kinds of cases she looked at in her experiments. But now we've got manifesting. We've got politicians who go completely out of control and just believe whatever they want to believe. They don't even have to find any evidence for it. So in my theory of misinformation, the opposite of this kind of making stuff up by motivated inference, I just call is collecting information from the world by observations, by using instruments, by experiments. These are really good ways of getting information about the world. But in some circles, including TikTok manifesting and, and a lot of politics, you don't have to look anything up. You just believe whatever makes you feel good. And it's, I think, really frightening. But people are also inclined to believe whatever makes them feel anxious, right? So it's not just about believing what you want to believe. It's also falling prey to anxieties and, and fears, presumably things that you wish you, you didn't believe, right? That's a different phenomenon. I call that fear-driven inference. It's an old idea. You can actually find it back in, in ancient times, but I encountered it fairly recently. The idea here is in motivated inference, you believe something because it makes you feel good. In fear-driven inference, you believe something because it makes you feel bad. Well, how could that possibly work? Well, the problem is it works all the time. When I first heard about this, I had teenage children, and I realized, whoa, I was capable of a fear-driven inference there because if they came home late or something, I start generating all sorts of scenarios about car accidents or troubles they've gotten into and things like that. It wasn't based on evidence. Why do we do that? Well, consider hypochondriacs. Uh, you think that, oh, maybe this little bump on the back of my neck is a tumor, a cancerous tumor. Well, that doesn't make you happy. That, in fact, that makes you very nervous. And the answer there is attention. So it goes back to what I was saying about consciousness. Consciousness is a matter of competition. And usually things win the competition to be part of your consciousness if they're emotionally powerful. Well, things like my kids are in trouble or this tumor on the back of my neck, that's really emotionally powerful. And so it grabs your attention. So the mechanism of fear-driven inference is very different from the mechanism of motivated inference. It's a matter where just because something is scary, it grabs your attention and then you rehearse it and you carry it on. And that's what increases the fear that comes from hypochondria or excessive worry about other things. Now, in the book, you offer up a bunch of different remedies for misinformation and, and disinformation. And some of them are societal and social. And you talk about pre-bunking and pre-information and re-information. And I hope we can get into that. But at the individual level, when you're just trying to help individuals to, to, to make better decisions and to understand the world in a more accurate way, it, it seems you're advocating practices that are very consistent with the sort of standard JDM approach, which means setting aside your emotions initially and examining data very carefully and walking through the inferential process. How would you bring emotions back into it? Well, a big part of it is you have to recognize that emotions are playing a role 
And so you have to realize that whenever you're making decisions, your emotions are part of it. And you have to try to work to discern the cases where they're directing you in good directions and other cases where they're just interfering. So some of the judgment decision-making techniques are really good. I used to use them when I taught critical thinking way back, as long as, as well as the more standard philosophical ways of doing critical thinking. So lots of things are useful if you can follow people like Max Bazeman, full of interesting ideas about ways in which people can really mess up their decisions. Sometimes they do it by over-concentrating on particular goals and forgetting other ones or not collecting information. So that literature is actually really valuable, and I draw on some of that. So I think there are lots of insights there, but we also need to draw on some insights that come from philosophy, other areas of cognitive psychology that identify ways in which people's beliefs go astray. But a whole lot of it has to do with being able to have a broader sense of where people go wrong. And I think that motivated inference is, is a big part of that. So if you're deciding, well, I want to buy a car, you have to get a realization of what your motivations are. Is it just to get you from one place to another? Or is it going to be something that's going to make you feel powerful and important in ways that will probably cost you more money than you really want to spend. Uh, so you want to put together all these different things into a package that ideally everyone would have as part of their everyday toolkit. So at the end of the book, I recommend a, a whole toolkit, partly drawing on cognitive psychology, partly drawing on ideas from judgment decision-making, partly drawing on ideas from philosophy of a whole group of techniques that people should use so they don't get sucked into motivated inference and the kinds of lies being told by other people who are just furthering their own causes. Right. Now, obviously, trying to get ordinary people to avoid misinformation and disinformation is one thing. But what about people who are scientists themselves, right? And people who are, say, in the academy. Do you think it's easier or harder <laughs> to get rid of disinformation and misinformation in those circles? Scientists have got lots of really valuable skills because they understand not just observation, they understand instruments, they understand experiments, and they understand that you ought to base your theory on the experimental results. So that's all good. But of course, scientists are human too. A long time ago, I published an article called The Passionate Scientist, where I described all the emotions that, for good or ill, uh, motivate scientists. Some of them are good ones, like curiosity and wonder and wanting explanations. But of course, Scientists have individual goals. They want to be successful. They want to be able to say that I've got the best theory. And so you have to have different constraints on that. Fortunately, the way it works in science is that there are social constraints. So you can't just say, oh, here's a great theory, and so I'm going to publish it in this top journal. It gets reviewed. And other people who don't have your biases look at it. So a big part of doing avoiding misinformation is making the social circuits work really well. And we've got a number of models for doing that. We've got ways in which science operates that way with something called peer review. But we also have the judicial system, which has various kinds of checks and balances that can go into what gets put forward as evidence. We also have journalism when it's done properly, where your journalists operating with good ethics and with editors with good ethics will be constrained in what they might want to say and not just get the story that will make them the most famous. So from those three areas, journalism, law, and science We've got models of ways in which the control of misinformation can be social as well as individual, which takes some of the pressure off the individual to just being a perfect epistemic saint. When we look at some of the experiments that have been uncovered in this replication crisis, every one of them has the result where you, you look at it and you say, yeah, that's really cool. I want that to be true because it's so cool, right? I mean, do you think that scientists are more or less willing to admit that they are subject to those sorts of desires, right? those sorts of motivations. 
Well, they, they might not admit it in front of a address to a large Congress, but they certainly would over a beer because people realize, of course, we got motivations. You want your work to be well known. But you have to distinguish between two different things. The replicant replication crisis was probably just sloppy methodology. I mean, the standards of science evolve over time. People figure out better ways to use inference, to, to do instruments, better ways to do statistical inference, uh, better ways to reach conclusions. And so a lot of this replication crisis comes out of fields that were kind of young and the standards weren't well accepted as far as things like sample size and statistical tests. And so some work was done that was sloppy. But I don't think that was evil. I don't think that was fraud. But of course, there are cases of fraud as well. There's a bunch of famous ones coming out recently. And so the fraud cases are really ones where it's flat out unconstrained, motivated inference of the sort that some politicians are prone to. So those are two different problems you need to worry about that need to be treated at both the individual and the social level. At the individual level, psychologists have cleaned up their act to a large extent. That is, they've stopped, they've warned constantly about things like p-hacking and small sample size, and they've simply gotten better at avoiding the problems that led to the replication crisis. The problem of out-and-out fraud is different, where you have to be able to find other ways, such as better editorial practices, to spot when people are just out-and-out lying. Now, in the book Balance, I think the bulk of the book is really about metaphor, right? And how we import this idea of balance into so many domains. But there's two different metaphors at work here, right? There's the balance that you experience as a person, right, corporeally. But then there's also the kind of balance beam, right? The image that we have of justice with the scales. Are they related or are they distinct metaphors? They're probably connected and underlying all of this is the idea of the balance uh, that didn't come directly from human balance, but from the weight. So when people first started weighing things, which happened only about 6,000 years ago, they built machines that were designed like the human hand, where they'd be able to figure out what's heavier or light. And so a lot of our balance metaphors come from that idea of balancing using weights. And that's, of course, the origin of the legal metaphor of the principle of justice that you're always balancing. So that's operating there. But it's important to recognize, and I point this out, is that there are good metaphors and bad metaphors. It used to be thought that all metaphors are bad because they weren't literal speech. That wasn't right. And lots of people pointed out that, no, metaphors are an important part of thinking. But one thing I really emphasize is that we have to look at metaphors and distinguish between the ones that are good and bad and the ones that are downright nasty. That is, they get in the way of understanding. So, with respect to so these bogus and toxic metaphors. That's right. With respect to Tai Chi, for example, when my teacher explained why Tai Chi works because it's balancing yin and yang, well, that's just not a useful metaphor because yin and yang don't exist. It's just an ancient uh, hypothesis that was supposed to explain lots of things in nature, and we've got way better things of ways of explaining nature than yin and yang. Uh, so that one's. That one there, I guess that's at least bogus. In some cases, it's toxic because if someone takes some kind of herbal treatment to say, oh, I'm going to cure my cancer by balancing my yin and yang, there it really is toxic because they're not doing the treatments that might actually help their cancer. So a lot of metaphors that we have to realize are really dangerous and get in the way. Not all. Lots of them, I think, are quite sensible and useful, like the idea of work-life balance that encourages you not to just care about your work or not just to care about your personal life, but see both of those as contributing to human needs. And so their balance, I think, is a quite useful metaphor that doesn't deserve to be denigrated as either bogus or toxic. Well, I mean, in almost every case, the implication is that balance is good, right? So whether it's homeostasis in medicine or balanced perspectives in justice, right? We always tend to think that the balance 
is good and the imbalance is bad, right? Well, but not always. Look at the basketball player who can do an unbalanced jump shot. It looks like they're going to fall on the back of their heads, but it actually can be very effective in getting the shot off. Or even take painting. Usually balance is useful because we want symmetry in paintings, but there are some paintings like Picasso who've done amazing things by playing with balance and basically attracting our emotional attention because it's so unusual. Or dissonant music. If music only had consonants, it would actually get kind of boring. But composers like Beethoven are really good at throwing little bits of dissonance to disturb us and get our attention and then bring it back to consonants. Balance isn't inherently good, but although most of our metaphors treat it as being good. But what you're talking about is, is this meta-balance, right? So you got to balance an, an imbalance, right? It's like the saying that I've always liked, which is it's important to be moderate about everything, including moderation. Right. Yeah. Look, you teach philosophy as well, and there's always been this tradition, going back to the Greeks, of being balanced, right? And, and being well-rounded. And as a person, I mean, how do you pursue that? You had an essay somewhere, I think it was in Hot Thought, about you know, what makes for a good scientist. What are the characteristics? And I think when I was looking at all those characteristics, a lot of them were about balance, right? And they're about good judgment, and they're about seeking insight and information from lots of different places and then putting it in, into perspective. And so, you know, I know in my life when I've tried to pursue well-roundedness, it, of course, all depends on how you define the dimensions, right? <laughs> what metrics you're using. You know, if you apply yards versus inches, all of a sudden you go out of balance. Well, I've got an answer to that that I developed both in the book on the brain and the meaning of life and also in my book, Natural Philosophy. Because it might seem, well, what are you going to balance? It could be anything. Are you balancing ornithology? Should that be one of your fundamental values? Well, I think not. I think the key to all this comes from looking at human needs, and here, there's lots of evidence. So you can take biological needs that are obvious. You need air, you need water, you need food, you need shelter, you need healthcare. And so these are biological needs that we've got loads of evidence for. But I've also been very influenced by a school in psychology called self-determination theory that has made a strong empirical case that there are three fundamental human needs that operate across different cultures. They sometimes have different balances in different cultures, but they're universal. And those three needs are relatedness, which is connection to other people, competence, which is various sorts of achievements, and autonomy, which is freedom. And so I think you can look at that literature and see that the psychological needs are as objective as the biological needs for air, water, and food. And so if that's the case, that tells you what to look for. It tells you that when you're making your ethical deliberations, when you're trying to figure out what would be a well-balanced life, you can do that by figuring out how these rather abstract needs of relatedness and autonomy, and what was the other one? Competence can fit together. In The Brain and the Meaning of Life, I gave it a kind of slogan to make it more memorable. I've said the meaning of life is love, work, and play, because love is about relatedness and Work is about competence, and play can involve a combination of both of them. Uh, and all of those work better if you have a certain amount of freedom. So I think the objective way, here now we're doing ethics rather than, than logic, is to make your decisions based on what humans actually need, where you determine need not just by some sort of a priori guess, but by looking at evidence of what makes people have the most successful lives. Right. And so if you're putting that into practice, so across the domains, you have to have balance. But then within each of those domains, what would it mean to find balance? 
Well, once you're in a domain, you've got a particular set of criteria. So you've got a scientist, for example, should have different kinds of goals. One could be personal success. There's nothing wrong with that. But of course, scientists usually do and ought to have goals of integrity and following scientific procedures correctly. I mean, the vast majority of scientists aren't going to believe whatever they want in order to further their careers because they've internalized constraints about doing good experiments and evaluating theories in systematic ways based on experimental results. So they're going to have these different goals. They're going to have goals that are personal, involving their financial success, but they've also got their scientific goals that people absorb right from the beginning of, uh, these days, undergraduate uh, research efforts. Uh, so you've got to figure out what to do that. And, of course, you also learn under what occasions do you put which goals over others. So you may put your own intellectual goals First, if it's a question of choosing a research program, because you can think, oh, this is going to be really exciting. This topic is going to be really big and it's going to contribute to my career success. That's fine for choosing your career goals, but your research goals. But once you get down to actually doing the research and writing it up, there you've got to follow the scientific goals, which you should have internalized goals about doing it in accord with scientific method. Well, I mean, do you do that in critical thinking? So, you know, I used to teach critical thinking and I limited the teaching of critical thinking to knowledge and inference, right? And then when it came to goal satisfaction, we would discuss that in, in economics, but even in economics, we would never talk about goal formulation. We would just take goals as given. Do you think that within critical thinking, it, it makes sense to talk about both goal formulation and goal satisfaction? Oh, absolutely. I started off teaching critical thinking the way you described. That's a traditional way of doing it. It's a branch of epistemology. But I quickly realized that I wasn't getting at what really mattered to my students. What do most of our inferences do? It's not just about what you believe. It's what you do. It's about the actions, uh, what you do for a career, or what you do in your um, uh, romantic life. These are the really important decisions. And I figured that if critical thinking can't help with that, it's pretty much, its use is, is highly limited. And so that's when I started teaching critical thinking by incorporating not just the epistemological standards and not just the cognitive psychology of how people's beliefs go wrong, but actually the decision-making issues coming from the Max Baseman kind of work. And I thought the course just got way better as a result. Well, you do that in, in the misinformation book, right? So when I was reading the misinformation book, I thought you were going to limit it to inference about the world, positive claims about the world. But you spend an awful lot of time talking about kind of normativity. And so how can we talk about coherence of normative principles? I mean, isn't that sort of something that's outside of the domain of scientists? No, because we've got this these kinds of findings about needs that I mentioned. I'll take climate change, for example. That's not just about whether you believe that climate change is caused by human action. It's what you're going to do about it. How are you going to change the political and everyday practices of people to keep the disaster from happening. So decision-making is a crucial part of it. How do you make good decisions? Well, you have to look at the needs not of a few powerful people, which might be needs for just a matter of greed. Actually, I love the slogan that I think came from Gandhi, need not greed. And so what you want to do is look at, at human needs. And so already it's clear that the people who are dying in wildfires, the people who are going to be flooded out because of sea level rise, all the other disasters that climate change is going to bring in the next few decades, their needs are not just not being met, they're being positively thwarted. And so what you need to do here is not just make good inferences about what's true or false, but also really good decisions about what needs to be done, where the need to be done is tied into real human needs, not into the preferences of few. 
The economist's way of talking about goals is, I think, just ridiculous. But they think of values as being preferences. Well, where do preferences come from? Preferences come from goals and emotions. And so the fundamental idea here is goals and emotions. Preferences are derivative. A hundred years ago, economists found a kind of sneaky way to get around the political critiques of, of capitalism by saying, well, we're just concerned with preferences. Well, no, that shouldn't be the case. Our preference, we can have good preferences or bad preferences. If your preference is to see humanity exterminated in the next hundred years, well, that's just a bad preference. It's contrary to human needs. So what we need to do much more systematically, and I think this is something that should be part of economics as well as part of a philosophy, is consider what goals are good and bad for the entire human population. And then we can make much better decisions than we have been about things like climate change. COVID is another case. That's another chapter in the book where there were all sorts of conflicts between people who wanted to say, oh, we've got to cut down on human activities so that we don't have a lot of deaths. And other people say, no, it's okay to limit human freedom if we can save a lot of lives. Here, there's a big difference between Canada and the U.S. The U.S. had a million deaths. Uh, Canada's got a smaller population, but the death rate in Canada was roughly a third of what it was in the United States. Why? Because the government took its responsibilities very sensibly, and it brought in lots of different measures for controlling the spread of the disease. And so the country just came off a lot better. That is, many few people died per capita in Canada and the U.S. because of a more responsible government, because of responsible decisions that were made based on good evidence. And so there, again, as in politics and in climate change, as in COVID, You've got to make good decisions that will fit people's needs rather than merely serve the whims of people who've got power. When you discussed the COVID response, you highlighted how, in at least in the United States, it, this was seen as a balancing exercise, right? Balancing between the objective of public health and, and then these other objectives that may have had to do with the economy or may have had to do with freedom and so forth. And I think you were suggesting maybe that metaphor was limiting you said also that every balancing metaphor can be translated almost isomorphically into a constraint satisfaction story. So first of all, how, how can you do that? And secondly, is, is that a, a better way to think about these complex phenomenon? Well, there's a general principle here is which science is that science often operates by turning metaphors into mechanisms. So for, for Darwin, natural selection was kind of a metaphor that he took over from his breeding experiments. But now... It's turned into this really rich mechanism that involves, involves actually a bunch of mechanisms, such as genetics and population biology. And so there's lots of really mechanisms, ways of which it's been spelled out. And similarly, the balance metaphors usually can be turned into constraint satisfaction problems because you realize what are the different kinds of goals? What are the constraints on accomplishing them? And so that's what I think should be done if you want to be serious about something like work-life balance. Don't just say, oh, it's balance, because that doesn't tell you what to do. My principle is, no, spell it out as to exactly what's in conflict, that is, things like love and work, and figure out what are the constraints on them, and then you can start to figure out how to satisfy constraints and how to realize that some constraints can't be simultaneously satisfied. So that's how I think that, that balance can be usually done away with by looking at much more specific things. Or if you look at the idea of balance in the body, 
well, sure, that's kind of useful to think about how you've got health as a sort of balance phenomena. But now we've got a really good set of mechanisms that explain how our health comes from mechanisms like metabolism and digestion and reproduction. So we've got mechanisms there, and we know that people become unhealthy when they break. So similarly, when people are making decisions, whether it's practical decisions or even philosophical decisions, we can actually put the balance metaphor aside, specify the constraints, and have a much more precise and deeper understanding of what we need to do to solve those problems well. So what's the role of education? I mean, you know, you taught a critical thinking course to a broad audience at your university. Critical thinking is a class that doesn't exist in most universities even, certainly not in high schools. And I think a lot of people just presume that if you learn a bit of science, you know, if you learn a bit of geometry, maybe if you're lucky, maybe you get a little bit of statistics, then you're going to learn how to do inference right. And then you're going to map it onto all the other domains in your life and you'll be a successful <laughs> and intelligent citizen. I think that there's probably some weak links in that argument. Now that we have 40, maybe 50% of the population going to university, that seems like a place where we could teach these things. And if we have 90% of the folks going to high school, we can presumably teach things there. What can educators do to increase the, the quality of both inference and decision-making among people in general? Oh, there's a huge educational responsibility there. You're right that a lot of universities have critical thinking courses, but not everybody takes them. And sometimes they're not done very well because they're just extensions of formal logic. My first job way back when, that's the way I taught informal logic. I thought, well, I'll teach them some logic and tell them about some fallacies. And after doing that for seven years, I was convinced that basically I wasn't doing what the job should be. And so when I moved to Waterloo, I completely revamped the course. And that's where I started bringing much more of these experimental findings from cognitive psychology and the ideas from judgment and decision-making research so that I produced a course that the students really liked. Uh, in contrast to my earlier students in Michigan, they who didn't think I was helping them very much, my students found this course really, really useful. You need to, first of all, do good critical thinking courses, but you can see ways in which that kind of thing provides loads of resources that a bit of science or a bit of statistical inference won't. That's mostly directed toward what to believe, and it's helpful to know that there are things like experiments that you should take seriously, but it doesn't help you with things like choosing goals and making good decisions, which is most of the inferences that people make. People don't spend that much of their time trying to figure out what's true, but they spend a lot of time trying to decide what to do with their work or with their families or with their leisure life. And so there's decisions all the time. So I think that critical thinking should be heavily aimed at these issues of decision-making, not just about what to believe. And the science courses can bring in some of this, but not so systematically. And frankly, a lot of this, I think, could be done at the high school level, so that certainly by grade 11 or 12, most students, anybody who can do physics or something like that, can be able to think about cases where their decision-making goes awry, where you concentrate not just on abstract ideas like fallacies or, or really arcane biases, some of which that psychologists have looked at, but look at the mistakes that people typically make in their everyday lives. And that's where I think motivated reasoning is a really important one, because all of us, no matter how much science or, or logic we've learned, are, are capable of falling into that. And so, we want to be able to realize that, yes, because my brain doesn't have a firewall between cognition and emotion, I'm going to be subject to motivated reasoning, and I'm going to be subject to fear-driven inference as well. These are all things that just my neural makeup are going to make me susceptible to. And so, by keeping my eyes open and watching out for, oh, here, I'm doing that, 
you can actually help. And of course, that's the negative side. You also want the positive side, where people can have better ways of making decisions, better ways of making inferences about what's true or false. And it's just really important that this become part, not only of the educational system, but part of the political system. <laughs> you're in the United States, and so you're familiar with lots of people who think that all they need to do is motivated inference. They can just make stuff up. And if it appeals to their own goals, and if it appeals to the goals of their constituents, then People will simply adopt it and ignore all the relevant evidence. So it's got to be political changes as well as educational changes. Well, it doesn't seem to be any kind of correlation between being a better decision maker and being a better persuader of helping other people to become better decision makers. In fact, there may even be a negative correlation. Like the more logical you become and the more capacity you have for seeing your own biases, the more impatient you get with other people who exhibit these biases, and therefore the less empathetic you become when you're trying to engage them in conversation. So is part of teaching critical thinking also teaching people how to both understand why other people make the decisions that they make and also to help figure out where that lever might be that might help them to bring those other folks towards better decision-making? Well, in decision-making and in ethics in general, empathy is really important. That is, you've got to be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and figure out why they're feeling the way they are. But the solution for this isn't just courses in critical thinking. I never thought of my book on misinformation as being a critical thinking textbook. It's not a textbook at all, but it's a book that I hope will make it clear to people that all these problems of information and misinformation are major issues in everyday life whether you're dealing with political conspiracies or inequality, as well as things like climate change. And so I hope that even though it's not a textbook, people will be able to read it and see that this is a way of identifying major problems in the world today, but also provide some ideas about how to deal with them by realizing that there are huge pitfalls like motivated reasoning that anyone can fall into and that can lead to gigantic world problems. And indeed, it does. It provides quite a bit of insight and also quite a bit of advice. The book is called Fighting Misinformation, Why Falsehoods Fly. And I guess it's coming out next March. Is that right? Actually, it's got a new title. My editor came up with a better title. The current title now is uh, Falsehoods Fly, Why Inf Misinformation Spreads and How to Fight It. So Falsehoods Fly will be out next February from Columbia University Press. Falsehoods fly and the truth comes limbering behind with their right, slowly. That's right. That's a quote from Jonathan Swift that I adapted yeah. for the title of my book. Also, another recent book is called uh, Balance. I think it's, it's really cool. Definitely check it out. And From Brains to Bots, another one. Lots of great books. Paul, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. This is really fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.